0: In a stunning breach of judicial norms, someone at the Supreme Court leaked an opinion by Justice Alito that appears to be a draft of a majority decision in favor of overturning the important precedent Roe v. Wade. Now the leak itself has drawn condemnation from many quarters, but how well understood are the stakes in this case? If, as is supposed, the leak threatens the court's authority to interpret the law in the face of public pressure, how should we consider the threat to the rule of law that is implied by the content of the draft decision itself? Well, welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we will examine that question. We will examine the draft decision itself and the significance of its release under the heading of the Supreme Court Abortion Leak versus the Rule of Law. My name is Ben Baer. I'm fellow and instructor at the Ayn Rand Institute. With me is my colleague, Senior Fellow, ARI, ARI Senior Fellow, Ankar Ghatay. Welcome, Ankar. Hi, Ben. Good to be here. And I'd also like to welcome our listeners on Clubhouse. We continue our experiment of simulcasting there. If you are listening, we will, once the main podcast is over, join you on Clubhouse to continue the discussion, answer your questions, and engage in conversation. So Ankar, I thought we should maybe start with just a little bit of background on this case uh, and the controversy surrounding the case. Uh, The Supreme Court was due to rule on the case of uh, uh, Dobbs v. Jackson. It concerns a Mississippi law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks. This uh, would outlaw abortions, uh, at least most of these abortions before the period of fetal viability. That's the point that Roe v. Wade originally specified as uh, the point before which abortion should be legal and uh, when a woman should have a right to an abortion. Now, in in the uh, oral arguments and the briefs that were exchanged about this case, both sides, both the petitioners and the respondents, agreed that if you were going to affirm the Mississippi law and uphold it as constitutional, you would, you would have to overturn Roe because it is in direct challenge to Roe and uh, we we heard we heard oral arguments over this case in december we did a podcast back then analyzing the arguments that were exchanged i'll give a link to that podcast later for those who are interested and if things were going to go according to plan the court was due to then release its decision on this case sometime this summer usually in june as these decisions are usually released but not everything went according to plan. Uh, Ankar, what happened with this leak? Where did? How did this come about?
1: Two days ago, so Monday, May 2nd, Politico, Politico, so the news site published that there's a leak. And then, I mean, it's a leak to Politico. So they published a, what is it? 98 page PDF of what's labeled as a first draft of what would become the majority opinion in the case and it's the if you if you read that it's yeah they're, go, they're overturning Roe v. Wade it's not they're not like Casey where they say they're keeping some element of it but modifying various other aspects of it it's a it's a complete repudiation that Roe v. Wade was incorrectly decided and we should strike it as any kind of precedent the, um, it, so it's important that the, that this is, I, I mean, at the start of the story, we don't even know if this is really a first draft of it. We don't know that it, it, nothing's been doctored or edited or omitted from it. It was, uh, I think it was yesterday that the Supreme Court, uh, Justice Roberts, confirmed that this isn't indeed the first draft that is, have been circulating. So, so we know that now that it is the actual first draft. It's not a doctored document that the court is, is repudiating. Um, but we don't know that this will be the final decision. So we don't know what the final vote will be. We don't know that Roe v. Wade will be overturned. And we don't know that this, what's in here, will make it into the, even if it is overturned, We don't know that these will be all or among the reasons that will be given for why it's the the correct um, interpretation of the law is to overturn Roe v. Wade. So we will go on to discuss it, but it's important to have those caveats that it's neither the decision doesn't tell you what the decision will be. And even if the decision is, yeah, they're going to overturn it, it doesn't tell you this will be the reasoning for why they're overturned. And it's, uh, I mean, I'm no scholar in regard to this about have there been leaks like this in the past? Uh, There certainly have been things that have leaked out of the court. I have never seen, and I haven't seen anyone pointing to where a whole first draft of a decision has been leaked and it's being discussed prior to the decision coming out. there's been books written after the fact about what went on in the court and so on, but not, I'm not aware of that there's ever been something like this on this scale. And certainly, this is obviously a very consequential decision. And so, that the first thing to talk about is the fact that this has been leaked. Like, that's a story in and of itself before talking about the content of this first draft.
0: Yeah, I agree. That's definitely the first thing to talk about. And we will in a moment, um, though, I, I do think even if this isn't a final draft, even if this isn't a final decision, given that it's not been doctored, it it definitely tells us that there's, there's somebody on this court, including obviously Alito, for whom this is a serious viewpoint, uh, that they would seriously consider striking it down, and that these are the reasons for it. And that's part of the reason why we will look at the reasons later. But yeah, the we should talk about the leak. and uh, one issue is, we don't know who did it. We don't know why they did it. Uh, there are competing theories about this. Uh, probably the most popular one is that there is a progressive leftist clerk who uh, is, you know, opposed to the content of the decision and wants to bring it to the public's attention perhaps uh, in order to give the Democrats some kind of issue in the midterms, but we don't know that. Uh, there are other theories uh, that people, other other hypotheses include that the, there's a conservative clerk or even who knows a conservative justice who wants to lock this decision in. They don't want there to be the usual process of revision where uh, a, a given opinion is perhaps watered down in response to objections, uh, perhaps even you know, not as much would be uh, struck down by it. And, uh, but we really don't know. We don't know who did this. We don't know why. And so we can't, we can't speculate much on that at this point, uh, including about you know, will they be successful in getting what they want? But we can talk about the the consequences that are likely to occur regardless of what people wanted to occur. And Ankar, I know you have some thoughts on this as to the, how to evaluate the consequences of a leak like this in a a court like this? I think it's really bad that this has leaked.
1: The court is, I think, of the three branches of government, the legislative, executive, and judicial. The judicial is the best branch of government right now in the United States, that it functions most by actual proper rules, and principles, and particularly when we get to the level of the Supreme Court, that the Supreme Court feels the need to explain itself. That is not to just issue a decision, not a half a page decision, we're overturning Roe v. Wade. Okay, then now go on and live your life and do it. It gives the it, elaborate reasoning in its decisions for why this is what it means, that the that this is what the law requires. And you might, as many legal people do, you might object to part of the reasoning in a Supreme Court decision. You might think they're interpreting something wrong. You might think this ar- argument doesn't really work or it leads to a different conclusion than the one they're drawing. So, but the fact that the government is there, that it's accountable in that sense, that it, it's here's why we're doing what we're doing. That's important. And you, for, if you think of it in contrast to say, um, in the pandemic, why is the CDC doing what it's doing? Why then is it sidelined? So You don't get any kind of real explanation and accountability for what is going on. Why is the Trump administration doing this? And then when it becomes Biden, why are they doing that? It's It's much more like you're under the rule of an authority. It's, well, this is what they've decided to do, so now you have to go along. And the Supreme Court, by contrast, And I think it's true of the whole judicial branch, but certainly when you get to the level of the Supreme Court, it gives its reasons. And I think it's it's the actual reasons. It's giving you why they're doing what they're doing. And if then you want to contend, if you want to bring other cases to the court and so on, you have a whole framework for what the, the actual reasoning that is going on. And anything that interferes with that process, I think is bad and like, it was really bad. And here that you that someone leaked, and we don't know, as you said, we don't know why they did it. We don't even know who they, like, is it a clerk? Is it one of the justices themselves? We don't know. And I think it's proper uh, Roberts in, in saying, confirming that this is actual first draft, also said, this will be investigated, how this leaked. And I think that is important. And I think it's important that there'll be real consequences if they are able to establish who leaked it and by uh, like what the whole process was, that there'd be real repercussions for the for whoever was involved in the leak because it can do all kinds of things. It can, so one of the things is it makes the court more open to political pressure. So what we saw was the day after people going to the steps of the Supreme Court, objecting to a decision that hasn't even yet happened, trying and uh, trying to put pressure on that, no, you can't do this and maybe you should change your vote and so on. And like there's been growing, this kind of growing political pressure on the court, but just even thinking within the court, it's are they gonna be less likely to sh- to kind of debate issues, share their first drafts of reasoning with each other and so on and say like, do you, would you poke holes in this argument? And they do convince each other of various things. And the more that that process now is, well, I'm worried that it will be leaked. What what will happen? And so, that in terms of actual deliberation, rational deliberation on the court, that is also jeopardized. And that's if that if there is any reluctance now on the part of the justices to do that, that's really bad in terms of thinking about rule of law.
0: Yeah, and I, I, the way I conceptualize this, the the rule of law issue here is, I mean, you often hear when we talk about third world countries that are uh, recovering from a dictatorship or on the verge of becoming a dictatorship that a, a key sign that that's happening is that the independent judiciary is being threatened and i think i think you see something like that happening here if if the if the justices are being threatened with intimidation or even just uh, Know, if their decision is in one way or another being uh, pressured by by popular opinion that is a that is a threat to the independent judiciary and and that's why it's a threat to the rule of law and that's something that i want to i want us to keep in mind this is the the criticism of the leak that i think many on the right many conservatives have been making i, I want to come back to their objection which i think is right in this case and see how consistent they are with it on other issues especially the, uh, the content of the decision or the content of the opinion itself. And Ankar, and given that it, this leak was such a bad thing, given that it was so bad for the court, its norms, for the rule of law, why, why do you think it's still worth us taking a look at it and looking at the content of it?
1: Yeah, my, I'll tell you, my first reaction was, I'm not going to read that, I, I, the, the, the leaked first draft. I will look at the decision when it actually comes out and this is what the court is actually publishing and saying, this is our, not just not just our decision as we were talking about, but here's the reasoning for why we think this is the proper decision that the legally correct decision. Um, th- so the fact that this was leaked, you're in effect giving the leaker power by saying, okay, now we're gonna read this talk. But the fact that this is um, so one, it's a government institution that's wielding political power, and it is a fact now that this is leaked. And then, when it becomes the the elected officials, politicians, people running for office now are talking about this, including, say, President Biden, saying um, like this is more reason why you should be voting for Democrats. Then it now it has, it's part of the whole political debate. And it, you, you have to know then the content of this first draft to, to evaluate how people are talking about it, what they're saying about it, how they're campaigning on it. And then I think it is that even though one, I think should have an initial reluctance to look at this leaked document, the, the fact that what we're dealing with is the government and we're dealing with government officials wield political power so which means coercive power there's a real reason to look at this and it is revealing how many people are taking stands on it without i think even reading the first draft let alone thinking about like what is the argument and reasoning here and that tells like if you're going to vote for an official and they're telling you something about uh a uh, legal case and you think well but they haven't even read the case and they have an opinion on it. And so that tells you something about the official and now you should be thinking about that. So I think there are reasons for why it's important actually to look at this first
0: draft and thinking about the
1: debate that is now going on
0: in regards. Yeah. I've, I've also noticed that most of the critics of the, of the opinion who are commenting on it have not actually commented on the, the details of the argument. Like you say, they've, They've uh, objected to the conclusion, they've talked about what they think the bad consequences will be, but very little actual analysis of the argument. And I want I want to turn to that argument now, especially because, I mean, seen from a certain perspective, it's actually really well argued. I mean, I don't agree with the argument at all. I don't agree with the conclusion. I don't agree with the with the premises. but it's it takes a certain number of premises for granted and reasons very consistently from those premises. And I think this is part of the reason why this position is winning that, that the people who are advancing it know what they're doing, and the people who are trying to defend against it don't. Um, so let's, let's, uh, let's take a look at it and talk about it. And I want to, uh, one of the things that's uh, useful about the draft is right near the beginning, there's, there's actually a nice couple of summary paragraphs which basically sum up the entire argument of the entire 98 pages. Um, you know, which we've both, we've, we've both now read, but here is that summary. And this is uh, presumably Justice Alito writing this on behalf of what looks like a majority opinion. And he writes, we hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. The constitution makes no reference to abortion and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one on which the defenders of Rowan and Casey now chiefly rely the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. That provision has been held to guarantee some rights that are not mentioned in the constitution, but any such right must be deep, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition, unquote, and quote, implicit in the, conception, the concept of ordered liberty, unquote. He continues, the right to abortion does not fall within this category. Until the latter part of the 20th century, such a right was entirely unknown in American law. Indeed, when the 14th Amendment was adopted, three-quarters of the states made abortion a crime at all stages of pregnancy. The abortion right is also critically different from any other right that this court has held to fall within the 14th Amendment's protection of liberty. Roe's defenders characterized the abortion right as similar to the rights recognized in past decisions involving matters such as intimate sexual relations, contraception, and marriage, but abortion is fundamentally different, as both Roe and Casey acknowledged, because it destroys What those decisions called fetal life and what the law now before us described as an unborn human being. Um, Now, I I wanted to start with just uh, a comment on what I think is interesting about this line of argument and it's something that they go on to then elaborate on in detail over the next 98 pages. And that's that I think many anti-abortion pundits, politicians, partisans, will usually just dismiss the idea that the right to abortion is in the constitution in some sense out of hand, uh, just because the the words abortion don't appear in the constitution. And at least Alito here is entertaining the possibility that there is uh, an implicit right in the constitution. Now, of course, in part that's because he's he's addressing uh, Roe and Casey, which argue for that, but he's also I think responding to the respondent attorneys in oral arguments who uh, doubled down on that position, and particularly with regard to what they argued was a implicit right of personal liberty that was uh, in, that was that, that I mean it's explicitly stated in some amendments to the Constitution, but that they think that its its interpretation and its meaning is implicit and implicitly applies to abortion. So the way that they then proceed to address the question of, is there some way in which the constitution implicitly addresses the right to abortion? The way they do this is by looking then at this, is it deeply rooted in history and tradition? That's their conception of what it means to look for this unenumerated right. And
1: and I take it part of the point you're making is that if one's thinking about the actual argument, not just the conclusion of the argument or what the supposed decision will be, it's this is a stronger argument. Like it's a weaker argument to say I did a, a search, a word search on the Constitution, and, and abortion didn't come up. So how could you think there's a right to an abortion? It's a more sophisticated perspective of saying it's. I'm not just arguing that. I'm saying even if of the rights that it's legitimate to think the constitution is there to secure or protect and stuff. they don't establish that there's a right to an abortion. And so it's in, in that sense, like if, if that he's right about that, it's a stronger argument. And if you're gonna say that this there's something wrong with this decision, you have to take what the actual argument is and it
0: it it's a in a in a certain sense it's a sophisticated argument. So let's take a look at the argument and and the details of it. So we're we're both philosophers and we analyze all kinds of controversies from a philosophic perspective, and and that includes questions about what do we have the right to do, and as philosophers at least. I think I I often have the tendency when I look at arguments in the law to say, well, it sort of doesn't matter what the law says. Philosophically, we're interested in what it should say. And even if the the justices are right, that there's not a uh, right to abortion recognized by the constitution in some way or another, sort of doesn't matter because uh, our view is it should recognize And then we can give an argument, a philosophical argument for why that's the case. Even still, like you're saying, it's possible to and desirable to actually analyze and evaluate the legal argument and and what they have to work with and what judges have to work with is the laws, as they're written, and that's their proper job. And so, if you want to evaluate their 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 reasoning, you have to actually you do have to take a look at the way the laws actually are and uh, and think about how they should be interpreted. Um, and so we don't just get to say well the, maybe it's not in the constitution but it uh, it should be we if we care about the constitution which i think we do because we think uh, it's the fundamental law of the land and that it was it was designed by founding fathers who had a novel and valuable vision for what government should be and we should care about what's in the constitution even so it's also the case that no law applies itself laws are generalizations that are meant to apply to all kinds of situations, not just a, a list of concrete situations <clears> that the, the drafters of the law are dealing with at the moment. They're, they're putting it down uh, in and codifying it because they wanted to apply to the future. And that you'd think would be especially true of a fundamental law, which is what the constitution is for. It's, it's a, a body of law that is in many ways coextensive with and, and fundamental to the founding of a nation. And we're saying, we're starting a new nation. that's going to be governed in a certain way. And this is how we expect it to be governed. And here are some laws that will provide guidance in our doing so. And when you look at the Alito opinion, my take at least is, is that Alito is interpreting the constitution in a way that suggests, or at least implies, I don't think he would say this directly, but he's looking at it in a way that implies that there really isn't that much guidance that the Constitution can actually offer, that there, there wasn't much guidance that the founders in the 18th century could give to those of us here in the 21st who are trying to abide by its principles. Uh, so. He spends a fair amount of time because he thinks that the way to look to see whether a right is implicitly recognized or protected is to look at the history and tradition. He spends a fair amount of time talking about why the right to abortion wasn't actually recognized in law prior to the 14th Amendment, which is what a lot of this is, uh, a lot of the interpretation of this is often hinging upon. And you know he might be right about that. I, Roe, I think, tried to argue that there was more recognition for abortion rights prior to the 14th uh, than probably was true. And Alito's got a whole appendix of all the states that allegedly uh, for, forbade or prohibited abortion at one stage of pregnancy or another. There is some debate, I understand, about how accurate his appendix is that uh, some of the states that he's listed, as having outright bans or that he's counted as having outright bans, didn't have it from birth. Many of them were just bans up until the quickening, which is when the fetus starts moving, which was more common law tradition. Uh, but in any case, it's, it is of course worth remembering that we're not just talking about a completely unenumerated rights here. We are talking about a general right to liberty, which is explicitly enumerated in the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Ninth Amendment, of course, later in the 14th Amendment in one form or another. And from that perspective, you have to think, well, okay, that's enumerated then. When the founders enumerate it, when they explicitly put it down in language, don't you suppose that they think that it is a general abstract right that applies to many particulars that are not enumerated? So, does our right to liberty at this point in time in the 19th century not give people the right to choose their career? Does it not give people the right to choose their friends, their spouses, where they travel to, whether they immigrate out of the country, whether they, you know, what kind of recreation they want to engage in? Is, is, so none of those are enumerated. Is, is Robert, is, sorry, is Alito really? expecting us to think that simply because those concrete situations aren't enumerated, there wasn't a right to choose those things and that the right to liberty uh, didn't cover them. I mean, I think it's fairly obvious that it would have, that it did. And in that sense, by virtue of that explicit articulation, uh, it's, it's deeply entrenched. Now, of course, it's also true that there are gonna be other laws on the books in this period that that uh, wouldn't have permitted certain liberties, but is Justice Alito then also implying that because these laws are on the books, that just because they're on the books, the they are they you have to expect that they're in some way consistent with the view of liberty otherwise articulated in, in the other laws? that there's no room whatsoever for striking down any law as unconstitutional subject to judicial review. He doesn't say anything about what the role of judicial review in looking at these laws would be. He takes the laws that were against abortion as sort of definitive evidence that they must have been constitutional. I I think to
1: get at why this is happening, there's a package deal in, uh, so you quoted from the decision and and then you had things in quotes in the decision and that's quoting from other Supreme Court uh, findings or opinions which are now taken as like that's right and so I'm quoting this and we all basically agree on this. And that's that you have to look for rights Unenumerated, if you want to put it that way, or not explicitly mentioned in the Constitution or something like that, by what's deeply rooted in history and tradition. History and tradition do not go together, yet they're being treated as that's the same thing. And um, that's part of the way the argument is working. And if you were to challenge this argument, part of what the challenge is, there's a meaning to say, we have to look to our history. That's not the same as our tradition. So the history is that the founding fathers thought of themselves, and I think you can say more broadly, what the leaders of the, what is to become the new nation, thought they're doing is something radically new. They're breaking with tradition that for the first time on earth, you're going to have a government that's dedicated to individual rights. That's part of the meaning of the Declaration of Independence, that it's, we're doing something new that's never been done before. That's part of our history. So to think about that it is to think about history, but the history is we're breaking with tradition. So it cannot be that we have a new constitution and it's new. It has new principles and new ideas. And every law that's been on the books for centuries is going to accord with this constitution because then like what's new in it? The, the, if you're really thinking about it, your perspective has to be this new constitution, there's going to be existing laws that conflict with it because it is new and radical, a radically different conception of the role of government. And so part of what the, the, what it means to call America an experiment and that it's a union that's perfecting itself, it would be to root out, okay, what is the traditions that we have that are incompatible, and now here it's the legal traditions, which means that are incompatible with this new thing that we've created. And you don't get any perspective like that in the way Alito is looking at it because he's taking, history means just going by tradition. And that's not what our history, that is that is not what American history means. And that conflation, if you break that apart, the, it so weakens his argument, but he can't see that or at least either
0: can't or does not want to see that. Yeah, and there's, there's almost even a, there's an implication that, that the laws of the past are just consistent by Default uh, that uh, which which invests, I think the lawmakers of the past with a fair with with a kind of omniscience that we can't really expect them to have. And part of the reason that we need law is is to help guide uh, the hand of policymakers because because they can't keep everything consistent in their mind and they need to be able to look back to what was decided. Uh, and it's not it wasn't always done consistently but more than that there is also the point that you would expect after a constitution is is an, is articulated and established that the the courts own jurisprudence in interpreting it would offer even further guidance that there would that there should be uh, and this is of course part of the reason why jurists look to precedent and so there's a lot of discussion about well what are the what are the precedents for uh, a decision like Roe, and Roe, of course, cites many of them. But Alito's argument again here seems to suggest that the court's own jurisprudence doesn't offer any guidance to interpreting the fundamental law, which itself was supposed to offer guidance. And he, he surveys at one point, I think this is one of the most remarkable parts of the decision, of the, of the draft decision, uh, is around page 31, where he surveys a range of cases. Uh, where the court has, has identified what it takes to be an unenumerated right to do something. And these are all precedents that are cited by either Roe or, or by the, the subsequent decision Casey. And I'll just, I wanna read the whole list here because it's it's important to see that there's something they all have in common. None of these are concretely specified in the constitution. All of these are ones that I think a lot of people uh, take as now established law because of various Supreme Court decisions. And yet Alito is saying none of these are relevant to, to analyzing the issue of abortion. And his reason for that is very revealing, which we'll get to, but here's the list. The right to marry a person of a different race, the right to marry while in prison, the right to obtain contraceptives, the right to reside with relatives, the right to make decisions about the education of one's children, the right to not be sterilized without consent, uh, the right not to undergo involuntary surgery, forced administration of drugs, etc., the right to private, and these last two are subsequent to Rowan Casey, but there's a similar point to make about them, right to the, the right to private consensual sexual acts and the right to marry a person of the same sex. Uh, all of those are cited as precedents by the current uh, respondents to the case saying uh, these all involve an appeal to the same general right to personal liberty. And that if we accept these in some way, we should treat them as precedents for continuing to affirm a right to abortion. But what Alito says is that we can't look at these to conclude that there is a broader right to autonomy is the way he puts it, which would justify abortion rights. Because if we were to do that, um, well, that would justify saying that there's a right to use drugs, uh, a right to prostitution, et cetera. And he, he takes that as just self-evident that those aren't rights. Well, um, that itself is a bit revealing because it, it, I think again, reveals that sort of, uh, that the mentality that all the laws that are on the books have already gotten it right and that there aren't any inconsistencies in them when in fact, no, I think one could very reasonably challenge uh, the laws against drugs and prostitution. But leave that aside for the moment, uh, because what's I think especially interesting about what he says here is why he thinks none of the whatever you generalize from this list of cases, this list of precedents, none of it is relevant to abortion. Why? He thinks it's crucially different from these other cases. why? well, here's here's the passage where he explains himself. He says, What sharply distinguishes the abortion right from the rights recognized in the cases in which Roe and Casey rely is something that both those decisions acknowledge. Abortion destroys what those decisions call potential life and what the law at issue in this case regards as the life of an unborn being. None of the other decisions cited by Roe and Casey involved the critical moral question posed by abortion. (laughs) So what's different about abortion? It's abortion. <laughs> I mean, he's in effect saying, I mean, he's basically given a definition of what abortion is. Yes, abortion is something that ends uh, uh, that ends a pregnancy, uh, that ends the life of an unborn uh, fetus, uh, ends the life of a potential being. No, nobody disputes this characterization of what abortion is, but I could easily say about any of the other cases on the list that they were treating as relevant precedents that they each involve their own crucially different facts if you give the definition of the fact in question. So I could say the right to obtain contraception is crucially different because that involves the decision to prevent the creation of a life. Well, that's what contraception is. Uh, There's nothing about either of those definitions of, of what the practice in question is, which in any way yet, Explain anything about why this is a special status constitution is speaking. I mean, Roe itself makes clear that uh, fetuses are not classified as persons or as citizens by the constitution. If the constitution doesn't say anything about that. And elsewhere in this draft decision, Alito is claiming to not be taking sides on the moral question about abortion or about what the policy question on abortion uh, legality should be. But I think it's pretty clear that he's doing it right here in, in thinking that there is something special about this case that separates it from these other cases such that we can't generalize about the other cases and apply it to this case. He's, he's, he's totally taking for granted a very particular moral viewpoint, a very particular view about the role of government. Uh, and, and he's really tipping his hand here to uh giving lie to the idea that, that he's just being a, a, a neutral, value-free uh, observer. It's not like justices can be value-free in that sense. Obviously, every interpretation of a law involves some value framework, but the value framework that's in, that he's relying on there, the only value framework according to which there is a special question here, is essentially a religious one. Uh, and with that in mind, The other thing that's missing here is any indication of why the decision he's now articulating and the decision to overturn Roe because there's no way that a general right of liberty applies to it. There's no reason given as to why this wouldn't justify repealing all these other decisions, which have recognized all these other rights, which were also unenumerated. I mean, this is the one place where I have seen uh, liberal and progressive pundits analyzing this to some extent, saying, you know, if you if you overturn Roe, well, then by that same logic, you've got to overturn a overturn Obergefell, which is the one legalizing gay marriage. Uh, you've got to, there's no reason to think that even um, uh, Loving v. Virginia, which is the one that legalized interracial marriage, that's not an enumerated, right? What would justify that? Why wouldn't we be justified in overturning it?
1: It's worth yep. saying in terms of engaging with this, that the this draft opinion does go out of its way to try to head this concern off or this objection off, that it's um, nothing in what we're saying applies to anything else. It's about the right to abortion it this decision should not be read as, as establishing any kind of precedent for something else and these other things should be overturned so to to really engage with that you have to be able to argue okay that's what you say but in terms of the actual reasoning that you're giving it does apply to other cases you can't carve out this case as it's Um, either, if if not an exception, it's just, it's not similar to the other cases, so don't try to move from this case to the other kinds of situations. And to do that, to really be able to argue that, you would have to take issue with the, um, what's in Roe v. Wade, that this, the Alito opinion this draft opinion basically thinks Roe is perverse that like it's this is why even though it's been on the books for uh, 40 plus years, we can over return it because it's such a bad decision. And it's the it's it contains all kinds of things that are irrelevant to the argument. It talks about the history and gets it all wrong about abortion it tries to apply uh, certain principles and it misapplies them. It comes up with a framework and doesn't give any reasoning for why this framework is right and entailed by the Constitution. Like It's very, very critical of the Roe v. Wade, the reasoning of the decision, and that that is part of why it's legitimate to overturn it. It's not that it's just I disagree, but there's a pretty cogent argument here. It's that this is an abomination, in effect, like a legal abomination that we need to overrule. What he does not challenge, including to say that Roe basically gives no argument for why this, that the state has an interest in in Roe, it will be put as uh, potential life. It's sometimes put as prenatal life. Here he adopts, I think purposefully, and this is the one aspect that I find very, uh, uh, sort of the motivation I suspect is bad for this, it's unborn human being. And that it's, there's the question of where this, when you say we're dealing with a potential here, that's something that's not actual. When you conceptualize it as unborn human being, it's like you have a human being, but what's the potential is, It's unborn and when it's born, that's what becomes actual and so But the actual facts of the situation is you have a potential human being. The potential applies to like, when you're talking about an embryo or so, you don't have a human being that's not yet born. So that terminology that he uses and substitutes for what is in some of the other abortion cases, I think is deliberate and it's deliberately confusing. But if you have it that, okay, so you don't, you have a potential human being, Why does the state have an interest in this? Um, And Roe gives a little bit of why they think there's some interest here. It's not convincing. And he does not challenge that in Roe. And if you did, then it would be, okay, so if that's what we're going to say, that the state has an interest here, we have to give an argument for that. And you better give a non-religious argument. For that, like you as a Supreme Court justice, give a non-religious argument for why the state has an interest in potential human life. That's just taken for granted, and that that I think the the in terms of the whole framing of the argument, it's um, this is this is a post lochner decision, and what the 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 Lockner decision was about. Um, I mean, about terms of employment, Could it was about a baker, could he have employees who work more than 60 hours in a week, the state of New York saying, no, we're prohibiting that. It's challenged and the court in the Lochner decision overturns it and says, no, part of the uh, liberty is the right to contract and to set employment terms and for someone to take those, it shouldn't interfere. Justice Holmes issues a very brief and um, what turns out to be potent dissent, which says, no, this decision, the idea that there's some, uh, uh, that the Constitution is protecting a right to liberty that could be used to overturn something like this kind of state law, that's just a complete misreading of how to think of the Constitution, how to think about it, how judges. think about it and so to say this is a post Lochner means in about a 30-year time frame people go from thinking Lochner is a correct decision to Holmes's dissent is correct and the Lochner decision is an abomination and but to say that Holmes's uh, dissent is correct is to say that um, it's basically to, to say the government can do anything unless we can find an explicit prohibition, in, in the case of the, for the Supreme Court, in the federal constitution. And if we can't read the federal constitution as explicitly prohibiting this, the government can do it. And so I think Alito's response would be, well, I read the constitution, I don't find that it explicitly prohibits the state from having an interest in prenatal life, So if it says it has an interest in prenatal life, okay, then let it do what it thinks is necessary to protect that interest. And that is such a misreading, I mean, putting it charitably, of the American form of government and what our constitution and what the revolution was doing. But I think that is the way it's being thought about. So that's why there's no, no need to try to justify this.
0: Yeah, whether or not this decision, this, this draft ends up becoming the decision in, in full form, this sure should be a warning to those conservatives and libertarians who think that the, the intellectuals on the court are somehow their friends, somehow advocates of personal economic liberty in a principled way. Uh, because, I mean, the Lochner decision is explicitly rejected twice in this ruling. You saw it criticized and calumnied by T- Justice Thomas in the oral arguments. And here it's it's made explicit on paper. Lochner was bad. We can't assume there's a general right to liberty that applies uh, to all cases. We sh- yeah, and yeah, we should assume that the government has the power unless it's explicitly stated that it doesn't. And this is, this is no friend to economic liberty or economic freedom or to limited government Uh, and, or it's, there are no friends as, as we will shortly discuss of the idea, the very idea of the rule of law. And I see two big reasons for this. One is the one that we've already talked about that from justice Alito's perspective, it's, it's really hard to see how. The constitution actually offers any guidance about what liberty actually is, apart from what's been specifically enumerated. And if rule of law is anything, it's the idea that laws can actually give us guidance that they that in their abstract form, they can apply to future situations that are not yet envisioned. And I mean, I imagine that Justice Alita would say, no, I think that law can do that. But given the way that he's so tightly circumscribed the the meaning of the term liberty to mean nothing more than the ones that are specifically enumerated and nothing else counts as protected by the constitution. It's really hard to see what guidance he thinks it could actually give. Uh, But then especially uh, leaving that point aside, the way that he thinks decisions about what liberties we're entitled to uh, should actually be determined is especially revealing because what he says explicitly in this draft is that for all other cases, for any other liberty that's basically not enumerated or not in one form or another, entrenched in the history and tradition of the country, the way that we define liberty, and he always puts it as ordered liberty, is by looking to see how voters in the states, choose to define, quote, define the boundary between competing interests. That for anything that isn't explicitly, for any liberties that aren't explicitly granted, all others are subject to this very pragmatic decision at the hands of the voters. And I mean, to me, that, that implies the opposite of the rule of law. That implies giving primacy to the rule of men as opposed to the rule of law. And this is what makes all the conservative hand-wringing about how terrible this leak is because now it's going to put pressure, popular pressure on the court. It's going to threaten the independence of the judiciary. We shouldn't have uh, court decisions subject to the what the voters want. Oh, really? Why not? Uh, when in fact, that's in effect what the content of this document is arguing for with regard to any liberty that isn't specifically uh, specified that any concrete application, which which the founders didn't envision because they didn't make a list of the 10,000 different things that it actually applies to. Uh, I, I don't think these these pundits and these critics and politicians, they, I don't think they give a damn about putting pressure on the rule of law from the people. I think they love it. That's, that's exactly what they're trying to uh, it, embrace in this decision. And it shows, I think they, they don't, They also don't care about the essence and the spirit of the constitution in the first place. That, I mean, Ankar, you were talking about how radical it is to lay down a new fundamental law for a new nation. And one of the central motivating insights of that document was the idea that we need a constitution because not just to protect against the tyranny of Kings but against the majority tyranny of a democracy that can just as equally, if not uh, more efficiently threaten basic individual liberties as well. And yeah, I mean, the way they see it now, it's like at best there are these liberties that are explicitly articulated in the constitution, but when you understand them in the way they do, they turn out to be nothing more than really, these are the permissions that we've been granted specifically by the founders because the voters of the past gave us this permission and the voters of the future, the voters of today, they can, uh, they can do whatever else they want to with every other area of life that the founders didn't explicitly comment on. Yeah, I think that last
1: point you made is, is important because I think it is it, it not stated, but it is implicit in the argument that what rights mean is things people voted on earlier that they seem to agree to. And it, when it's made it into the constitution, yeah, it's hard to change, they could be changed and people could take away even these rights if you had enough votes and, and went through the process by which the constitution can be amended. And so the at best, the conception of the rule of law is the standard conception that the progressives have, that in the end this is not what the rule of law means and certainly not in the american sense and and the founding father sense of this is a new conception of government and of law but at best it's you have to go through the procedural niceties and if you go through the procedural niceties then it's that's what rule of law means so it's all formal procedural there's no content and this is also part of what what Holmes, is, Holmes did in his dissent in Lochner, is basically to say the, the Constitution has no content. And then you can put an asterisk, except for in the Bill of Rights that concretely specify, yeah, you can have a gun or something. That, then it, but apart from that, there's no content in the Constitution. It's just about the processes that you have to go through. Um, and, and so you can read the 14th Amendment uh, due process clause, It's all about process. There's no substantive content or rights here. But what rule of law versus men means in the American conception is that you possess rights and that's like, there's a content to that. You possess, possess these rights that are freedoms to action that no person can take away. And that's why now you're not subject to rule of men who will tell you, yeah, I'm granting you permission to do this, or I'm taking it away. No, you've got these rights that are claims, and they have a content. I have a right to life, to liberty, to the pursuit of happiness. I have a freedom of trade, a freedom of contract. And this is why the original Lochner decision, which was which said, yeah, a person does have a freedom of contract, and, and no man or group of men, including the government, can take this away from them. So the American conception of rule of law is there's a real substance to the law. And you can look at laws on the books and say, no, this is actually not rule of law, but rule of men, because it's not protecting rights, it's depriving people of their rights. So it's not all procedural in the American conception of what rule of law is. And that's what's being like, this is a further step in the process of gutting the Constitution, but the very conception of what the Constitution is doing as it has a substance that's protecting rights. One of the most revealing things in in Alito's, um, in in this first draft, and connecting to what you brought up, is what he says about liberty. Um, This is on what page is this on? This is on uh, page 13. in part, the, the we are asked to recognize a new component of liberty protected by the due process clause, um, because the term, but then it's the term liberty alone provides little guidance. Liberty is a capacious term, um, and then he goes on. He quotes Lincoln, and then he quotes Isaiah Berlin. Um, in a well known essay, this is the essay, of, um, uh, one of the essays on liberty of Isaiah Berlin, he reports that, quote, historians of ideas, close quote, had cataloged more than 200 different senses in which the term has been used. And that is the, it, it's, the, oh, liberty is so abstract a term, who can figure out what it means and so on. But that means like the Declaration of Independence, when it says you have a right, rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it's that, oh yeah, like this is nice rhetoric to fight the British, but who could say what this means? And 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 that is like, you've lost the whole conception of the American form of government. If you can write liberty, who knows what that means? I know when, it, when you concretely specify that um, uh, you can do this particular action, I know what that means. But if you use the term liberty, I as a judge on the Supreme Court, don't know what that means.
0: I suspect that there are a lot of people looking at this decision, the draft of this decision who are opposed to abortion rights, who think of themselves as defenders and lovers of the constitution, but it's hard to make sense of why you would see yourself as a lover of the constitution. If you thought that it's key terms, were just hot air, which is, which is in effect what this is saying and people are getting on board with it. And I mean, it's, if you care about the, what what's deeply entrenched in the history of the nation, more broadly, you would think also that it it would have something to do with, well, what were the ideas that were motivating the founders to put this document together in the first place? What were the, what was it what was in the intellectual atmosphere in this period that motivated them not just to write the document but to have the whole revolution in the first place? well that had something to do with the with enlightenment philosophy and there's there's a lot to learn about what liberty actually meant you don't without even looking at the laws of the period but by looking at the thinking of the period and many of our founding fathers were themselves philosophers you'd think that that would be relevant to figuring out what they were actually saying and why it wasn't just hot air So Ankar, we've gotten a a number of questions that have come in and we can can probably take a few more if people want to submit them. But I saw one come in from YouTube that I thought would be good to talk about. Someone asks, how do we conceptualize liberty and codify it into law? So I I take it they're listening to what we've said and and thinking about, well, uh, we have this view of what the law can do which Alito doesn't think it can do how can it do that? is 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 the is the Constitution enough? Uh, how do we how do we f- proceed to codify more laws apart from the Constitution that that uh, respect the same idea of liberty? Do you have thoughts on that?
1: Well, yes, I mean a lot goes into answering that question so I'll bring up two aspects. One is you have to have a conception of what rights are. And so what in, if if the purpose of government of, or in, in the American conception, if the purpose of government is to secure these rights, you have to have some concept of what does it mean? What is it that you're securing? And part of what is required here is understanding that they're freedoms of action, what a right is, is says, I have the freedom to act in a certain way or then not act in that way. I have choice in regard to that. It's not a guarantee that I'll achieve anything. So if I have a right to property or the right to the pursuit of happiness, what that means is I have freedom of action to earn property and then keep it if I've earned it. And so It's not a guarantee that I'll be able to earn it. I have a freedom to pursue my happiness. It's not a guarantee of an outcome a result that I will be happy. And so you need so you need broadly a conception of when we say that what the government is there is to protect and secure rights what it is that they're protecting and securing but then in terms of thinking about the constitution it's you and what it means that you would then secure in in part the right to liberty so the right to life liberty pursuit of happiness or, or the right to life liberty property and the pursuit of happiness what it means that you're securing that is you're not trying to specify every action a person has a right to. The Constitution, this is part of what's radical, it flips the perspective and says, these are the powers being delegated to government. And if you can't find this, a power delegated here, then it's, the government does not have this power. So rather than it's that you have to, every citizen has to say, um, uh, sort of, I have a right to do this, why is government encroaching on this and so on. The whole perspective is the government has to justify itself. It has to justify why it has this power and why a law that it's passing is a way of exercising this legitimate power that it possesses. So the burden of proof shifts from the individual have to saying, no, government shouldn't be able to do this because it would trespass on my rights to the government having to justify, we have the power to do this because it's been delegated. And part of what happened in US constitutional history is that was deliberately flipped around. And this is part of what the progressives do, part of what Holmes is doing that it's, no, the government doesn't have to justify itself. The citizen has to justify that the government's in the wrong and if we were able to reflip that to the American conception, you the, the law just would, would be radically different because now the burden of proof is on the government to show, yeah, uh, we, we take a different kind of thing. We can put up a wall along the Mexico border. Like where does the government have the power to do this? Um, and that the whole focus would shift to why does the government claim it has the power to do this? And where has it been authorized? this power. Um, And that's not at all what exists today, which is why our liberties eroding and why it looks like it's impossible to specify like every liberty and so on, because the whole conception is not the American conception of government.
0: Let me ask you a follow up about that, because I've been in some discussions recently uh, with people who would probably agree with you about the idea that the we should interpret the constitution as an enumeration of powers uh, and that we shouldn't flip the the script in the way that it has been done. But they'll also say the constitution is regarding federal power and that it's a different story when we're talking about the power of the states and these laws against abortion that Roe overturned were state laws. How would you respond to that?
1: There's an argument to be made that this, is part of the American experiment of figuring this out and that you might think right after the revolution and the uh, passage or ratification of the Constitution that it's that issues unclear. But this is part of what the Civil War is about. And part of why the Civil War was fought, it's that the states are claiming Oh, yeah, with well, the constitutions about the federal government and federal powers, but a state government, we've got whatever powers we say we have, or the opinion, uh, the majority opinion agrees to and so on. So if we want to have slavery in our states, what's wrong with that? And who are you to tell us that this we can't do this? And the um, Civil War is in part that, no, that cannot be the American conception of government. It can't be Yes, you have rights at a federal level, but the state government can um, abolish them or trespass on them left and right so long as it it has the votes to do so. That that makes a mockery of the whole revolution, if that were the case. And so when they talk about what happens after the Civil War that the Bill of Rights becomes incorporated, part of what that means is these rights apply to you as a citizen of the United States, regardless of what state you're in, and if a state says, oh, no, but we want to have slavery and so on, no, that's no longer a permissible legal perspective in the U.S. And I think that's the right, in terms of what the American, the new American conception of government, that's the right way to look at.
0: i ask a follow-up about that, because even though I very much agree with you, that was the issue in the Civil War, even still, we, we had a 13th and a 14th Amendment after the Civil War to make explicit, uh, presumably the rights that were being violated by the slaves even before these amendments. Uh, What is your view about the the need for such codification, further codifications in law to, to, I guess, further clarify what, what the meaning of the original constitution is?
1: I think there often is need to do that, but it's dependent on the circumstances. I think that's the whole Bill of Rights. And this was an argument about the Bill of Rights. And people worried that if we specify certain rights that people have, it will be taken as, well, this is an exhaustive list. And if it's not specified, then people don't possess the right. And so you have the Ninth Amendment that tells you, okay, if you're going to read it like this, you're wrong to read the Bill of Rights like this. But people still, despite the Ninth Amendment, read it like that. And if you think of some of the content of the in the Bill of Rights of, of say the First Amendment, why is there a First Amendment? Why are they singling out freedom of press, freedom of religion? I think the basic answer is they know both from history and from their understanding of government that among the first things a government will trespass on are these things. It doesn't like what the press is saying, wants to stay in power, and so it's going to censor the press. Like Putin in Russia, the moment the press says something he doesn't like that threatens his standing so on, we're shutting down these things, China does the same. So there's an understanding of that. And so if the American system starts to unravel it's among these kinds of things that the government will start laying claim it has the power to do. And something like the First Amendment, even with the First Amendment, it happened um, with the Alien and Sedition Acts. And so it happened pretty quickly after the passage of the Constitution, the government's saying, no, we do in effect have a power to censor. So I think that's the reason that the things that are in the of rights, it's they can easily imagine, but imagine is informed by evidence of the government trespassing on these things. And so we're gonna make it even more explicit that the government does not have this power. And I think something similar applies to slavery. They, I mean, they know after the civil war, it's not like everybody in the South and the Southern government had been convinced, oh yeah, we were wrong. And then we're gonna... So that you need the, this to specify in the constitution, this explicitly that the, you don't have the power to do this. The citizens have these rights. And so, I think, yeah, it, it made complete sense to do that in the context of, of the kind of political, legal, moral context that existed at
0: the time. But it's it's you can't view it as this is an exhaustive list. Well, that I think naturally suggests the next question, which is let's suppose that Roe is overturned as it looks increasingly likely that it will be. Uh, for those of us who think that a woman really does have a right to an abortion. Uh, if, if we can no longer take consolation in this decision by the Supreme Court, what's the next step? Do you think uh, there is need for actual legislation to codify? There is a bill uh, before Congress, the Women's Health Care Protection Act, which seeks to codify Roe into federal law in sort of the same way that the civil rights uh, law did for the 14th. Uh, it, you know, it, for the Brown v. Board decision, of course, in this case the decision will get overturned. But Congress still has the power to pass the law. Uh, do you think that's would that be an appropriate next step, or or would it really be pointless if we didn't have an, another constitutional amendment like the Fourteenth Amendment?
1: I don't. I don't think it's pointless. I do worry about the content of such laws that they will, in the way that they're written, will invent new rights that are not rights Um, so i can imagine it being done badly and that creating additional problems it could be done well and i'd be sympathetic to it if it was done well i think the ultimate solution is getting to the stage that we have a better understanding of what the constitution means and what rights means and therefore what this radical new form of government that the founding fathers created means. But the other thing that's obviously happening as well is that what in the, what some of the state governors or politicians have said is that um, we're gonna keep our, uh, however you wanna put it, our laws that protect the right to abortion um, so we're not going to do what Texas is doing in, in some of these other southern states. And that's a good thing, too, that there are states that will reaffirm that even if Roe v. Wade is stricken down, we're not going back to laws we had on the books in the 19th century that prohibited most abortions and so on. And that that is, um, I think, a positive sign as well. But what's your view about the, some of this the sort of the legislative angle if Roe v. Wade gets struck down?
0: I read the text of the, the Women's Health Care Protection Act some time ago. It's been a while since I read it. At the time I read it, I thought it was pretty good. I didn't seem to be inventing new rights beyond the right to, act, to, to get an abortion if you want one. Um, I, I'd have to go back and, and take a look at it again. Um, but I, I am worried that if, let's say the Democrats pass such a law in the current Congress, that, especially because this is such a controversial issue, that, well, then the Republicans will just repeal it uh, in the next term. And then we have just constant back and forth uh, changes to federal law. And that's part of the reason I'm thinking you really would need a constitutional amendment if you wanted to eliminate that football game. And of course, that's going to be very hard to get at this point. And notice that that's, a consequence of Alito's view,
1: certainly at the state level. Like His view is, if every two years, the the at the state level, the legislative body changes, it's, yeah, you can prohibit abortions, and then you can legalize some or all of them, and then two years, it'll change. To, and he, so there's a kind of view that, because um, this is part of what he's critical about Roe and Casey as well, that it's trying to solve this issue of not make it a political uh, source of discord. And he thinks if there's not a federal um, perspective on this, there's just different state perspectives like that resolves the conflict and it doesn't resolve the conflict. If there's people who want to enact their religious views into law and it's legitimate for them to do so, they're going to be keep jockeying to do so, and if at some point there there's uh, in in the state bodies the, a legislature that says no, we're striking these down, they're going to try next to, to election to get it back in, and that's his view. And this is worth saying too that it's in terms of his thinking about the constitution, he, the, this draft opinion evidence is no thought about whether this is compatible with the first amendment. And if you have this kind of view that the the majority can enact its opinions into law, that has to include a religious majority. And how is that compatible with, there's no establishment of religion? And they're supposed to be free exercise of if, if, a, if they can, if, a, if the majority says we want to ban abortion because we're Catholics or whatever, it's like his view, it seems to be, yeah, that's, that's at the state level. Um, and that's part of what to, to say that the American system is not a democracy and it's not the majority rules, um, th- that someone could think that It's hard to think that you can honestly think that about the American system, that it's like, just kick it down to the state level and the majority gets to rule. How is that compatible with the, even with what he thinks are rights in the Bill of Rights?
0: I think we should start to wrap up and continue this conversation on Clubhouse. That is what we will be doing next. So if you're with us on Clubhouse right now, Stay tuned, uh, as soon as we wrap up the podcast, we will, we will join and uh, see what you have to say, what further uh, topics you'd like to discuss about this issue today. I'd also like to share with our viewers some resources for understanding more about some of the topics that we talked about today. Uh, we've more or less been taking for granted in this conversation, the, the objectivist view on the topic of the right to abortion, which is that there is one and that it's important. And If you'd like to learn more about that, definitely check out the entry in the Ayn Rand lexicon about the topic of abortion. It's actually the first one on the list because it starts with A. Go to bit.ly slash arabortion. It highlights Ayn Rand's essential views on the subject, why and why she was such a supporter of this crucial right. Also like to mention that uh, Ankar and I did another podcast on this topic back in December when the oral arguments first came out on the Dobbs v. Jackson case. You can see that on YouTube if you go to bit.ly slash Roe v. Wade Brink. Uh, We actually play audio from the oral arguments and uh, analyze many of the issues that came up today in greater detail and some issues that didn't come up today. I also wrote uh, an op-ed a few months ago on the subject of the current controversy because it concerns Roe v. Wade and Roe v. Wade only sought to protect abortion rights before what it called viability. It's a line that many on the right have called an arbitrary line. And there's something to what they're saying, because it's very hard to defend that line uh, as objective. But that doesn't mean we don't have to have, uh, that means that doesn't mean we should get rid of abortion rights. If anything, it means we should have them all the way until birth. I wrote an article, abortion should be legal until birth. That's at bit.ly slash abortion until birth. And last of all, uh, we talked about today, some history of jurisprudence, in particular, the Lochner decision, the one that uh, found that in a general right to liberty, you could justify freedom of contract, economic freedom, More generally, this is, of course, a view that was later uh, repudiated and is continuing to be repudiated in Alito's opinion. Our colleague, Tom Bowden, wrote a very enlightening and instructive history of the Lochner decision, what led up to it, uh, the way in which Holmes dissented to, to it and uh, dissented with it, and then how his dissent played a role in subsequent jurisprudence. And that's an article we recently republished in New Ideal. It's called Justice, Holmes, and the Empty Constitution. You get some indication today of our conversation why Holmes' view would have implied that it was empty, because it's just this hot air abstraction of liberty. You can read that at bit.ly slash Holmes empty. It's H-O-L-M-E-S empty. Otherwise, I want to remind everyone uh, that this is our last week of a fundraising campaign that we've been doing here on New Ideal. Um, and uh, we've been trying to raise $5,000. If you enjoyed our show today, consider adding to that. Here, I would, I would ask our viewers and our listeners to think about where else in the world can you get the kind of analysis that, that you've just heard today uh, th- from uh, people who can look at the philosophic meaning and implications of important cultural controversies. Who will do you the service of reading a 98-page decision in order to do that analysis and and give that analysis of a type that you're you're not hearing from anyone else. No one else is saying it's a it's a travesty that this document was leaked, but also the document itself is a travesty. You won't find that really anywhere. So I I, I thank those of you who have already contributed to the campaign. I see we've uh, I think already raised a few hundred dollars today. Uh, maybe we can do a little bit more. Thank you very much for that. Um, otherwise, if you enjoyed our podcast today, I can, and you're watching on YouTube, please uh, subscribe to our channel. Click on that bell to get notifications when we go live, when we post new content. Uh, if you're watching after the fact, please add a comment, share it uh, with your friends. That helps optimize the algorithm so more people will see what we're doing. Uh, please do the same if you're watching on Facebook. And also, if you are, if, if if you are consuming us through any other channel, remember that you can always, you can always send us an email at newideal@einran.org. We read everything that comes into this account. We respond to much of it. Sometimes we even do episodes on topics that you suggest. So uh, we we appreciate all the emails that we get, and we will uh, we will turn to Clubhouse soon, which is one of our other channels. But um, thanks, Ankar, for joining me for this conversation. Thanks, and see you on Clubhouse. And and we will see you all on Clubhouse soon. Thanks, everyone. Bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.